0: I grew up in a family where I had two brothers and three sisters. Uh, I was number five of six, and um, because of a set of twins in there, there was six kids in six years. Okay, My mom had four in diapers at one time, uh, which I don't know, and with different ages, I just go, I don't know how I could have handled that. Uh, But a realization, when you stuff six kids and two adults, In a a three-and-a-half-bedroom house, do you know what you get? Fighting, (laughs) insults, yelling, taunting. Uh, As I was preparing this week, as that picture came to my mind, the number of times where, uh, I won't say what I I used to do, but... um, uh, but obviously when you put that many kids there's going to in that close of age span there's going to be conflict and there was a saying that was taught to us and a phrase that that I, I had to use often or was it was told to me often it was this go tell your sister you're sorry anybody ever have to use that phrase or uh, you still use it with your kids now. Now, I, I'm not sure that I meant it all the time when I did do that, uh, but there's another side to this. For as much as we were told when we wronged somebody to go to them and say we're sorry, I, one thing I don't remember is mom and dad ever sitting down with us and saying what it means to forgive the other person. Well, maybe that's because I was started it most of the time and I wasn't on the receiving end. But the question, when you think back to your childhood, how many times did your mom and dad talk to you about how to forgive? Interesting thought, isn't it? But when we fast forward to today, some beliefs that I had, that asking Would you forgive me? It's still hard for an adult, isn't it? And maybe, which is even harder, I, I think, even as an adult, is extending forgiveness. See, today we come to another one another that is so important. And right up front, I tell you, I'm not going to do justice to it today. You could t- spend five, six weeks on it. But this one another is so relevant with our lives and in the life of a church. Look at how it reads. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to begin with verse 13 to give some context. Therefore, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, first, bear with each other. You could say bear with one another. That bear, understand, is about enduring or holding on to the relationship. Holding on to people in relationship. But here, I think there's a connection with bearing with one another and forgiving. And it's this. Holding on to the relationship is largely dependent on us being able to forgive. Because if we don't forgive, the relationship goes away. It dissipates. And I understand, it's easier sometimes to just let it go away. Folks, extending forgiveness is hard. I don't know if you realize this, that the word forgive occurs in 81 different verses in the Bible, Forgiveness occurs 124 times. Forgiving occurs 11 times. Forgiven occurs 61 times. Forgave occurs 13 times. Together they make up 290 verses on the topic of forgiveness. The book of Hebrews, by the way, is 303 verses. It's almost like the whole book of Hebrews talking about the issue of forgiveness and forgiving. But there's a verse I want to put on the screen that I want to just remind us of from Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a text where it talks about us being able to go to one another if we have a problem. But but Peter raises an interesting question. And look how he states it. Then Peter came up and said to him, which is Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now understand that Jesus wasn't implying that we get to 69, 77. No, and then we stop forgiving. This is hyperbole. It's, it's a point to emphasize that forgiveness is to go on and on and on. But let me drill down on a couple aspects of forgiveness that I think we often forget and maybe even try to ignore. And one of the issues is this. When sin is committed against a person and the relationship is broken, we most often point to the offense as the reason for the broken relationship. And you can name any sin, hurtful words, slander, just fill in the blank there. And what we do is we point to that offense that's, that's taken place, that that is the failure of the relationship. That's the reason that there's, it's, it's breaking down. But there's another side to this that I think we forget. And the other side of it is this. It's the failure to forgive. It's not just the offense, but the other side of the coin is the person forgiving the other. I, I, I was going to take a stick, and I didn't. I forgot it. But think of it like a, a, where the offense, if you took a stick and started bending it, the offense that's happened... It's like bending the stick. But all of a sudden, if unforgiveness sets in, the stick breaks. That's the breaking point of the relationship. But this idea that as we look at those two sides to the issue, I find that sometimes people could become a little indignant and they go like this I wasn't the one that did the sin. They're the ones that committed the sin. That's what broke the relationship, not my forgiveness. Because when we don't forgive, what we do is we feel justified and we've convinced ourselves in our mind that the other person's sin is far worse than anything that we have done against them. And the sin was much greater than what I ever committed against them. See, we believe that their sin is much worse than the sin of unforgiveness. Look at verse 12. Let me link this to this issue of forgiving each other. Therefore, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Then it goes, bear with one another, forgive one another. Folks, in verse 12, these are the fruit, this is the fruit of the Spirit of God working in our hearts and our souls. And when that begins to get placed within us, those qualities what happens is it makes it much easier to forgive. Matter of fact, I think this is what takes place. As the Spirit works in us, we begin to remember and really grab hold of that phrase at the end of verse 13. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And we begin to look in a mirror and we go, Oh, Jesus forgave me and I'm a sinner too. And we let go. But that has to be a work of the Spirit. And, and so all of a sudden there can be compassion. There can be tenderness, kindness, gentleness. As, it, as we see in our lives. But when you apply this to a church, uh, there, there's a question. Is there a church that exists, exists today where offense won't happen or hasn't happened? Have you ever been in a perfect church where something has not gone wrong? Here's what's true. We've all offended people at times. We've all failed to present people complete in Christ. We've all shown preferential treatment when we probably shouldn't have. We've all been less than considerate to people's needs at times. We, We failed to minister to people when there was a point of need. And folks, we know this. Every one of us sin. Do we like it? No. But when you put sinners together in a group, like my house that I grew up in, you crash into each other. It's going to happen. Our weaknesses are exposed. Offenses come out. But, But I think at times in a church we go... Well, a, a relationships should be easy in a church. and go, no. That's just not true. Now, I, I think here's where we could head. Well, you know what? If I just avoid people at church, you know what? Then I'll get along with them. Or or do I not even go to church? So, you know, if I avoid people, then I won't sin against them. I, You know what? They won't sin against me. So let's just kind of Keep our distance. But well, if that's our attitude, we, we're actually sinning. We're missing at the heart of the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. That command to love one another. We looked at that last week. See, removing ourselves from relationships is not the answer. I don't have time, but there's a concept in Scripture where when we withdraw love from other people, it equals hate. And I think that's another time, another topic. But let me give you just practically some consequences when we don't give forgiveness. We don't extend it. Number one, for your notes, if you're taking notes, it can lead to bitterness It becomes like an infection. A malignant tumor just grows. It can spread. The initial unforgiveness just can go down a path that's just not healthy at all. Matter of fact, physical things can actually take place. Number two, I see this when it creates distorted memories. People begin to rewrite history and change it as they look back a distorted way to view life. Number three, it leads to infecting other people. All of a sudden, people are slandering the other person. They're, they're convincing others how wrong and how bad they are. And they deserve to be punished. And it leads to people taking sides and not work for reconciliation and forgiveness. They're actually, then it creates more Fights. And then conversations became opportunities for defamation and exaggerations and, and, and even sometimes outright lies. Do we work at understanding forgiveness and forgiving? Uh, you know, as I was pondering the whole parenting thing and did I teach my kids about extending forgiveness? I, I think that's a fair question for, for us as parents are we actually talking to our children about how to forgive? But maybe more important as a parent, maybe it's the idea that we as parents need to model forgiveness to our children by the way we treat our spouses, our friends, people at church, people at work. Uh, you know what, and I, I think if even teenagers can impact other fellow teens, by how they demonstrate this in a proper way when forgiveness is really extended. And now we live in a tech world where I don't want to forgive somebody. You know what we're going to do? We're going to defriend them. (laughs) That's how we do it now. And we walk away from the relationship and defriend them. And ignore them. And that's just the opposite of this one another. Another one, verse four, or number four, it steals one's joy. Uh, you know if you put a kettle on where it runs out of water, all of a sudden it starts to smell, and it's that stench. It just it takes away the joy, the sweetness of it, and it keeps moving on, and there's always that flavor, and there's no joy in a person's life. And number five, maybe the most important one. It blocks one's love for Christ when we don't forgive one another. Matter of fact, look at 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what's assumed there is that there's no forgiveness in that passage. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. It blocks our love for God when we hold on to offense. But there is a benefit to forgiving one another. And it's this, the great benefit for your notes on the screen. Forgiveness sets us free to fulfill the great commandment. It releases us to worship God with a purity and with a love toward Him and vert- or horizontally we can go out and we can love other people and it's okay. We need the freedom to do that. And is forgiveness easy? No, and this is where I, I wish I had more weeks to do uh, to cover it. But I did come across a quote. It's kind of interesting. From uh, his name is Stern. He, this, he was in the 1700s. He was a pastor and a novelist in over in the England in the Great Britain. And, and look at what he wrote. Only the brave know how to forgive. It is the most refined and generous element of human virtue. I like that. Cowards have done good things and performed kinds of actness. Cowards have even fought and conquered, but cowards never forgive. It's not in their nature, their hearts. The power to forgive flows only from a strength and a, great, and a greatness of soul, uh, conscious of its own humility and security, and able to rise above all the little temptations of resenting every fruitless attempt to steal its happiness. The brave forgive one another. And the body of Christ must forgive one another, or it robs us of joy, contentment, happiness, it blocks us from loving God. Do you see the depth and I think yeah, I could have spent weeks on this topic. Well let me move to another one, another one, another here, and I'm gonna lump three of these together here this morning. First Thessalonians five eleven. And kind of the opposite of not forgiving. Look at what it says here. First Thessalonians five eleven. Therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just in fact as you are doing it. You know, if we don't forgive, how do you encourage? You really can't. Look at Hebrews 3:13 see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness Hebrews 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Spur one another. Encourage one another. Do you catch how important this is in the life of a church and between people? Encourage one another because Jesus is coming back spur one another on that it's idea to stir up one another Uh, i don't know if you realize the word encourage encourage is used 105 times in the new testament and it's a word that's a lot wider i think than we understand at times and it's a very important word but let me give you some definitions of, of what it can mean, if you, if you looked at all of those verses that where it's used, the breadth and the depth of, the, of that word kind of goes farther. So here's some on the screen for you. For sometimes it means to call to one side, to walk with somebody else in their spiritual journey. Or it could mean to address, to speak toward. In a way, it's exhortation. Entreat, to admonish, exhort, to beg, entreat, beseech, to strive, to appease by entreaty, to console, to encourage, to strengthen, to comfort, to instruct, to teach. All of those are in different contexts of where this word is used. But the reality is is that this call to encourage one another is to be a regular part of our lives. And the seriousness of this is, is how do we do this? And it has to go deeper than say, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Is that encouragement? You go, "Not, not very often. See, how do we go deeper in it? But let me give you some application if you're taking notes. Number one, make giving encouragement a way of life. And it's the way we look at people. Are we willing to say, I want to give to encourage and bless other people as they come in my path? And as a matter of fact, let me put up 313 on the screen there. But encourage one another daily, daily. As long as it is called today, meaning until when Christ comes, if 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 we're here today, we're called to do it every day, folks. That's a lifestyle. It's not just a one-time thing when we come into the doors of a church or a group of people. God calls us to put on an attitude of encouragement. But but let me go point out a nuance here. I want to put some more, back up some definitions on the screen here. So you'll you'll notice that to call ones to one side, that's walking with somebody, okay, spiritually speaking. To address, to speak, to be done with exhortation, another way to do it. And the other way is to console, encourage. I I think most of the time we think of this as encouragement. But understand, it's wider than that. And and here's what I, I, I think... I've come to conclude that depending on your giftedness and your personality, each of you will have a bent toward a certain type of encouragement. For some of you, like for my wife, her ability to console people is so much better than mine. Okay? But some people can exhort Use words to go after people in such a way with gentleness that it makes a difference. For some, it's just teaching. For some, it's just to be there with them. That's the form of encouragement. But all of these are called to be a lifestyle as the the way that we live our lives. But let me give another nuance to this. Number two. We need to give encouragement reactively and proactively. Now, what do I mean by this? When you think of console and comfort, that is a reaction to things that have gone on. So we look for people that are hurting and we comfort them. That's a reaction. But there's also a proactive element and really, it falls pretty strong in the disciple-making idea that we're coming alongside of people intentionally. And let me put up the verse on the screen as to why. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Do you see the proactive nature of that? We're coming alongside to keep people from going down a path. We try to do with this with our children. We try to do it with other people. Is that we're walking with them and trying to help them stay away from that path that they, they'll, they'll head toward trouble. Now, I think the challenge for us in this, all of these, it does imply words. We have to use words that come out of our mouths. And the question, do we choose those wisely or not? That's the hard part, I think. Do we give words that build up, or are we giving words that even tear down? One of the songs uh, that we sung referred to Romans 8 All things work together for good. You know, what? I have seen where people have tried to use that for encouragement, and it's just backfired. You say it at the wrong time, and the timing, if the wisdom's not there to use that in the right setting, it will actually hurt people, to quote that verse. So we need the wisdom in order to encourage one another deeply. But let me take you down some of the challenges, a couple that I see within a church like ours. And the first one I pointed out is this, is people believe that fellowship, oneness, community, Is actually optional, even though they might attend church pretty regularly. You see, how we view the church, why we come on a Sunday morning, is it to, is the church a dispenser of truth to make our lives work a little better? Or to make me holy? Or maybe it's the dispenser of truth for our children. We send them there in the classroom, and that's what church is about. Or or maybe it's an athletic club where we come and we're getting a spiritual workout. Is that our view of church? See, the the challenge in all of these one-anothers, you go, how do you fulfill the one-anothers if that's only the church? And we recognize that the language of the Bible, the church, Ecclesia, is the gathering of people. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. We are the collective bride of Jesus that one day together we're, there's going to be a wedding together with Jesus. And the fact is, unless we have relationships within the church, how do you fulfill the command to encourage one another, even to forgive one another? You see, how you view, how we view the church is absolutely critical. But there are people who do gather regularly and just because we gather together doesn't assume that encouragement is actually going on. I don't know if we realize that or not. Matter of fact, number two, I think this is what happens too often. People are willing to accept surface community. See, the question, how do we go deeper to have a culture of encouragement in families, in the church, within this body. See, what are the things that are keeping us from that? See, th- there's a reason, though, as to why I think we like to stay on the surface. and I, it, There's a theological perspective on it that I don't think we realize. Let me put up on the screen Genesis chapter 3. It speaks to surface community. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, this is Adam responding, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here's the first encounter between God and Adam after Adam sinned. Now now catch this, in this verse it speaks to our relationships today and what happened. Because that was a picture of God and Adam and Eve. But think of the core emotion, I'll put it on the screen for your notes, I was afraid Fear was the core emotion. And by the way, before the fall, fear did not exist in the garden. That was the first moment that fear came in. And why was he afraid? What was the motivation? Adam's core motivation? I was naked. He knew something was wrong at that point. And the strategy which from that point on has filled with people's hearts and lives and churches, the core strategy was to hide. Folks, why don't we at times want to become one and why do we want to just stay on a surface? I think it's fear. Fear that what if they really knew who I am? They probably, just like Adam, what if they reject me? See, if we want to admit it, that we don't want it, we want to keep people out because if they really knew who I am, I'm not sure if they'd like me. They might not even be my friend. Did you see what took place in the garden? And how that fear rises, and it starts when we're very young, and we don't want to, we fight so hard so people don't reject us. I, I think back to the first piano recital I had, the first and the only one, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I goofed up on it, Um But why do we fear getting up on stage for the first time? Why do we fear those things? Because we think of we we believe what will other people think? Will they accept us? Will they reject us? And deep down it's going on there, but we just don't want to admit it. Do we are we willing to open up and address the fear? Or do we stay on the surface? And hide. And too often, let me put a little picture up on the screen, this is the reality of church. We put on a smiley face, and we still have these walls, and each of us has a wall all the way around us, and we can get out after church here, and really what we're doing is bumping into each other's walls. I've used this illustration before that This kind of intimacy is like kissing through a where there's a window in between. You really don't get there. But folks, the church is called to... to, These one another's are called to run, push deeply into our soul and it means that people have to know us. They will never truly encourage us if they don't know us. And if we keep the wall up, Years down the line, I think what it feeds into is loneliness. People don't know each other. And I see this even in husbands and wives where they keep the, the wall up and they really don't want to know and they because there's a fear of rejection. But there is really good news here. There really is. Because we do not have to live with those walls. Now does it mean that we won't bump into each other that there won't be sin committed against each other. And the answer is no, but that's where we go back and we're called to forgive and to reconcile. Because Jesus did it with us. And He still accepts us even when we sin. Do we believe that? When we goof up, does He, does he say, I love you, Ken? The answer is Yes. And the answer to fear of rejection, let me put a verse on the screen which I think is the answer. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Where is love found? It's not generated from ourselves. It's generated from God pouring out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. God wants us to pour pour His love into us in such a way that we do not have to fear rejection by one another. And it freezes up to forgive, to encourage, to love. And what it does, it begins to begin to taste and get an understanding of what John 17 speaks about, about, that we would become one, just like the Son and His Father. Do you realize that there are absolutely no walls between the Father and the Son? There is complete oneness, complete harmony, and these one another's are given to us that we could begin to taste of that kind of oneness within a body of believers. Let's stand and pray.